are continuing a series that we've been in for the last several weeks called The Art of Reframing. And many of you have been here for most of those messages, but if not, just know that always our messages are available online. You can listen to those through our website, or many of you that maybe use podcasting as a way to listen to uh, communicators, that's another way we also make our message available through the iTunes store. Uh, And it's free. You can also request a CD of any of the messages that maybe have helped you or might help others, and those are no cost to you uh, to share those messages forward. But the whole concept behind the art of reframing is that all of us have a belief that we have formed about things in life like the use of our time or forgiveness or contentment. We've, We've created a belief about that, and that belief has been formed oftentimes through Uh, how we grew up and what our families believed, what our parents told us, what our peers influenced us toward, what academics or college might have told you about these things. And so it's kind of formed a frame through which we look at all these things and try to make sense of life. And the reality is, and this was true for me, some of the things that I had formed about a belief around something were actually not even biblical. Um, And so when I would read the Bible and, and have my belief, it was like, I came to a crisis of belief. Or when life happens and your little frame of what you believe about something uh, doesn't make sense with what's happening, then you'd be called into question what you've come to believe. And maybe what you've come to believe wasn't even biblical or true. And so as followers of Jesus, we build our belief not on our own ideas or the opinions of our culture. We build our beliefs upon what God says about these things. And so we've talked about forgiveness and contentment with faith. Last week, Pastor Matt talked about time. Today, we're going to tackle one of the big topics as well, and that is suffering. I want us today to reframe suffering. Now, this is the one area among several other topics, that becomes kind of the big guns against the Christian faith. I've heard it debated from uh, people, I've watched YouTube videos that call into question the existence or the goodness of God because of suffering and evil that is in our world. And so I'm going to talk about that today because many people say things like this, if God is good, which he is, Um, how could a good God allow bad things to happen, which happen? Bad things do happen. We can turn on the news and find out today something bad is going to happen. So when that equation takes place, God is good, but a good God wouldn't allow bad things to happen, but bad things happen. Therefore, there certainly is no good God, or maybe there is no God. And that becomes the argument that is thrown out, tossed around concerning suffering. Because we want to make sense of suffering. I mean, many of you who have went through something challenging, a trial, a hardship, or a suffering, you wanted to make sense of it. And we make sense of it trying to ask questions like, why did this happen to me? Or God, what what are you doing to me? I've sat with a lot of families as a chaplain with our law enforcement and fire department who have been automatically involved in something they didn't ask for that was an immediate form of suffering, either through grief or pain themselves, and sat with them as they wrestled with questions like, why would God let this happen to me? Doesn't God care? How could a good God allow suffering? And the reason we ask those deep questions is because we have to make sense 
of what is happening to us. There's something in the human mind that says this has got to compute. There's got to be a reason this has to make sense. And so oftentimes, if we don't believe in God, what we do is we look at our suffering or our hardship and try to find purpose in that. And if you've ever tried to find purpose within your suffering, within the event happening around you, how many know that that's a little bit difficult? Uh, You may not get the full story simply looking at your suffering or what is happening. It's not bringing you hope or comfort. Other times, what we do instead, maybe we, we, we turn that inward and we say, well, this is probably happening because I'm a bad person. I did something wrong, therefore the law of karma says something bad is going to befall me because I am bad. And a lot of people live under the law of karma where it's, it's I do good, good things happen. I do bad, bad things happen. And other people look not inward, maybe they do, but others also look outward and begin to cast blame. This is your fault. And they, they blame it on a spouse or on their kids or on their parents or the way they were raised. Or they blame God and say, this is all your fault. And in all of those ways, we try to make sense of it. And the reality is that frame that you have created over time may actually not be able to help you to try to make sense or have an understanding about the suffering that you face. And so all of us have formed a frame around suffering. You have one today. If someone asks you why suffering happens, you have a way you answer that. And that frame that wraps that, per- that particular topic has been, been built over time. And if your frame says something like this, maybe your frame says, uh, well, this is the result of sin. The reason this bad thing is happening is because of sin. Then if that's your frame, then what you tend to do is you tend to do better. You tend to say, well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to work on my works, and I'm going to get better, and maybe the bad things will stop happening if that was what your frame was. Some of you, your frame concerning uh, suffering might say, well, this is due to a lack of faith. If you just believed God more, this wouldn't be happening to you. And so you work on trying to muster up more faith and try to believe better and believe harder and pray louder and pray harder, or you walk away from that faith because that frame is not helping you make sense of the suffering that you're facing. Some of you might have developed a frame around suffering that says that God would never allow his children to suffer. And so when suffering happens, you begin to call into the question the goodness of God or even the existence of God. But all of us have created a frame through which we look at suffering. And the question is, how is that frame working for you? And is that frame in line with Scripture? In fact, maybe the question we should be asking is, what does the Bible say about suffering? And the good news is the Bible actually has a lot to say about suffering. When it comes to this topic, the Bible is not quiet. God has a lot to say about why there is suffering, how we should respond to suffering. And so we're going to look at it, and here's what's going to happen today. And it's going to come at you at rapid speed today, all right? Because to get to the final point I want to make, I have to lay a foundation of why suffering may exist as we look at the Bible. And so if you want to follow along and try to take notes, good luck. But here's another option for you. Uh, You can download our notes from our website, albanync.org, and go to our messages, and our notes are there. Or you can use the YouVersion Bible app that many of you have on your smart devices. Just go to events, go to live events, and find Neighborhood Church, and we'll have all these points for you. 
And my heart is don't try to write all these down, but listen collectively to what is being said, all right? And then you can unpack it further through the notes. But the first one, and, the, and, and probably the primary reason why we have suffering is this, that suffering is the product of universal sin of mankind, all right? We know that God created According to Genesis 1, God created. And when he created, he created something that was good and perfect. In fact, after every day of creation, he said it was good. After he made man, he said it was very good. And so what we see is there was no suffering during the beauty and the time of the Garden of Eden and the perfect creation God had made. But in making man, he also made man, yes, in God's image, and part of that was to have his own will. And as humankind, we have our own free will. Sometimes we wish mankind didn't have a free will because then God could step in and stop the violence and the evil and the suffering that's happened at the hands of wicked people. But man has been given a free will. And it was exercised in the garden. God gave us a free will to choose to love him. And that's why. Why would God give us a free will? Because if we were robots, that's not love. That's just duty to God. But he wanted us to choose him. But in giving a choice to love him, he also gave us a choice to disobey. So in the Garden of Eden, we see it. They chose to disobey. There was a temptation in the form of a serpent who happened to be Satan, who tempted them to eat the fruit they were told not to eat from. And when they ate of the fruit, they sinned. And sin entered not only humankind, but it also corrupted our world. Let's look at it. Genesis chapter 3. This is after the events of the sin, and God is now confronting the serpent the woman, and Adam. Look at what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But notice this, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. What does that mean? There is tension in the spiritual realm. There is wickedness at work in our world because of sin. That, that, am, that enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman. And we feel that all the time. The evil that's in our world, right? But it goes on from there because there's hope. He, which is speaking of Jesus, will crush your head, the head of the serpent, and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And we have this sense now of pain entering mankind. We don't know what pain looked like prior to that point. You know, if Adam hit, him, hit his finger with a hammer, would he, would he feel it? I, I don't know. I wasn't there in that time. But we now have this awareness that the woman will have pain in childbearing, and there will be relational tension in life. And haven't we seen that in our own marriages and in relationships? Okay, we move on from there to verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And now we see creation being impacted by the, by the curse of our sin. The ground is cursed because of you, and through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and will And you will eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. 
which is now death, which hadn't happened prior to this point. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you return. So what we see in this dispensing of, of judgment upon those involved, we see that there was evil that was given power in our world. There will be a striving spiritually. We see that there is a body that will experience pain. We see that there is painful toil the days of our life, which we've all felt. And we also see that there will be death. We will all die, which is a great and terrible form of suffering that many of you have, have been a part of, somebody that you love. So we see that because of sin, there was a sense of a universal suffering that we all experience. We wish it wasn't this way, but this is the wage and the consequence of sin. It does lead to destruction and suffering and brokenness. Amen, let's go home. No, that's not the end. All right, let's keep moving. The suffering may also be the result of your life choices. Now, because Adam and Eve made a choice to disobey God, there was a consequence. And many of us have suffering in our life because of our own life choices. In fact, we don't always have our best interest in mind, do we? Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, which is the temptation all of us feel, to live what feels right and good for you. Nobody else can tell you what's good or right because that is what your flesh will tell you. And when you live according to the flesh, look what happens. From the flesh will reap destruction. Friends, you and I have felt the suffering that's been at our own doing. When we have chosen to do something in the flesh that has been hurtful to ourselves or to others. Man, I've seen the suffering that is unfolded in the life of a person who chose to become addicted to a substance, to a drug, to a narcotic, to alcohol. I've seen the, the suffering of a person who has chosen to live their life smoking and the effect that that has had on their lungs that has caused suffering. There are so many forms of suffering through um, acts of the flesh, sexual promiscuity and dealing now with an illness because of that, carelessness and dealing with the injuries that come of that. So much of it can be our own doing. And so if we're doing something stupid, let's just stop, all right? Because we're probably suffering from something that we have created ourselves. So there's a sense biblically that that can be a form of suffering, and we can correct that pretty quickly by bringing our own life into alignment with the truth of God's word. But suffering is not necessarily judgment for personal sin we also see in the Bible. So if you are doing something, if you are a sinner or living in a sinful way, stop it. Okay, God has given us the power to be forgiven and move forward. So we've already covered that. But there also is this sense where people have said to somebody suffering, well, you must have some unconfessed sin in your life. And that's why you're suffering. Many of us know Johnny Erickson Tata, um, a great communicator, author, who went through a very tragic accident that caused her to become a quadriplegic. And she has been in a wheelchair now, I believe, over 40 years. And not only has she been wrestling and suffering through that and through the paralysis that she experiences, on top of that, she also deals daily with debilitating chronic pain. And uh, we <laughs> have heard, maybe heard her testimony or watched the movie about Johnny Erickson Tata. But one account, when she had been speaking at a, at a public event, at the end of that, a young man came to her and said, I, I think the Lord has something to say to you. And she said, well, I'm all ears for what God wants to say. And he began to tell her how she must have sin in her life. And that is why she's in this wheelchair. And that is why she is suffering from chronic pain. 
And she looked lovingly at this young man who felt like he was God's messenger. And he said, he assured this young man, there is no sin in my life that Jesus has not forgiven. And he couldn't believe it. He just said, you need to confess. You'll certainly find healing if you confess your sin. Maybe your frame has told you that the suffering you feel is because of sin. The Bible is not necessarily going to back that up. Here's some examples. Um, Job, Old Testament. This is pre-Jesus. Job was a man who was blameless. In fact, Job 1.1 opens with this. In the land of Uz, not Oz, don't confuse the stories. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So here's a guy who is right with God. And we'll come back to Job in a little bit because we see what happens to this man who was right with God and the suffering that he faced, not because of his sin, all right? We move forward in the stories of Scripture to a man named Elisha who was a prophet after Elijah. Many of us have heard of Elijah and Elisha, great prophets of the Old Testament who did remarkable miracles Men of God who followed God with all of their heart. And this little part of Elisha's story, I had not remembered until I had done a study on on suffering. I want to bring you to 2 Kings chapter 12. This is toward the end of the ministry of Elisha. I want you to see what it says. Actually, 2 Kings 13, verse 14. Now, Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Here we have a great prophet. Now, Elisha was taken up to heaven before he even died. Many of you maybe have read that story. A chariot of fire swooped down and collected Elijah, and he didn't die. But now we've got Elisha, whose ministry was even more effective and powerful than Elijah because Elisha asked for a double portion of the anointing, and he did great things. And look at him. Where's the chariot of fire coming to pick him up, right? He is suffering from an illness that will lead to his death. Is he suffering because of sin? I don't think so. In fact, here's what I know to be true now that we're living in a life of grace after the death and resurrection of Jesus. When I have found forgiveness of my sin through Christ and I'm living in his grace, there is no judgment or condemnation over my life for sin. We're living in grace. Now, again, I can undo that by living stupid and doing bad things that harm myself, and I will have the natural consequences of suffering that come with that. But when I live in relationship with Christ, forgiven, friends, God is not waiting to zap me with some divine laser gun because of my sin. I'm covered. When he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ over me. So I am not facing suffering because of my sin or because of sin. Also, suffering is not a permanent problem. The good news is it will come to an end. Now, many of you are praying for that suffering to end right now. I know Johnny Erickson taught us praying for her suffering to end, but we'll come back to her story in a little bit. Many of you are doing that, and it may or may not end here. But the Bible gives us a wonderful story of the end of suffering. Because remember, the world started with perfection and no suffering. That, too, will be restored. Revelation 21. This is toward the close of the Bible, all right? So the book ends of Genesis and then Revelation. 
And in Revelation, we have this account of John, the apostle of Jesus, having these visions of things yet to come. And this is what he sees toward the end of his revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. Friends, there's a day coming that we get to live in perfection where there is no suffering. But we live right now in the land of in-between times where there is suffering, there is pain, there is brokenness that is part of this world in which we live. But God will make things right. God and his justice will make things right. Suffering also may be allowed to test your faith. We see this in the Bible. When I say test your faith, maybe a better way to say that is to test the genuineness or to test the strength or to prove your faith. Kind of like what we do with metals or even glass when we put it into a pressure or into some kind of testing and it actually strengthens the steel or it strengthens the glass. We call it tempering, right? It's meant to do that with our faith. In fact, we have, again, this example of Job of the Old Testament. Let's go back to Job chapter 1, verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, so here's the backstory. Angels had been called before God, and Satan was allowed to also come into God's presence. There's a great mystery around that. I don't know why. I'm just telling you it's in the Bible, all right? So Satan comes, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? I'm just kind of hoping that Maybe God will never say of me, have you considered my servant Kelly? (laughs) Because this is what's about to happen, right? He believes so firmly in Job because Job has believed so confidently in God. Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one like him uh, on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is what God is saying about Job. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him? That's where we get that idea of praying a hedge of protection around somebody. I mean, I want like a wall that's 20 feet high, not a hedge. I've got hedges at home. It doesn't really help. A hedge around him and his household and everything he has. You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, I know what suffering does, God, and he'll walk away from you because of his suffering. The Lord said to Satan, and this is where I want you to understand, God's not causing suffering, but he does allow it. In his sovereignty and within his realm of control, there are things that he allows that we don't really understand, but he's not the cause. He will allow. So what does he say? Very well. Then you, everything he has is in your power. God gives a power to the enemy within a scope of, of exercise. Please understand that. Satan is still not omnipotent. He is under the sovereignty of God. Very well, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We know how the story goes. He is... His his family is struck. He loses all his possessions in one moment, and he goes into great suffering. And he says that wonderful prayer that we've made into a, 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 a song that we sing in worship, but he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
May the name of the Lord be praised. How many of us would actually be able to say those kinds of words under great suffering? But it goes on. Because the temptation's not done of his faith, and it moves on to Job 2. Satan returns, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. In other words, he's still holding on to his faith in me. And Job does all the way throughout the book of Job. Yeah, he questions God. You can read it. It's pretty heartfelt stuff. He calls it a lot of things into question. He despises the day he was born. I mean, he really is in despair, but he never accuses or curses God. In fact, his wife even says, just curse God and die. Yeah, well, thanks for that support from my lovely spouse, right? He has friends that come, hopefully, to comfort him. Instead, what do they do? Job, you must have sin. Job, there's got to be a reason, something you're doing that's wrong. There's no other reason that God would allow this to happen. You must be the one in doing wrong. And they falsely accuse him. And then we spend chapters of that discussion back and forth, back and forth. And finally, God speaks. And after he speaks, he blesses Job with everything he lost plus interest. A double blessing over his life. Sometimes suffering comes to prove the genuineness of our faith. Peter touches on this in the New Testament, in case you just get hung up on Job being Old Testament. Peter is writing his letter at a time when Christians are about to face very severe persecution under the emperor Nero. In fact, Peter himself will lose his life as a martyr for his faith during Nero's persecution. In fact, he is actually crucified But he doesn't want to be crucified the same way as his Savior, so he's actually crucified upside down. And the torment he must have faced, the suffering. And he writes this to Christians who are suffering. And he says, in all this you greatly rejoice. In all this what? In all of this suffering. You greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed what does he say this is about the genuineness of your faith I know what suffering can do to people when it tests their faith it may I may or somebody may have had a faith in a form of God, but it was not a genuine view of God. It wasn't a biblical view of God. They had an idea about God, and when suffering happened, they could not reconcile their frame of God, and so they walked away from that faith. But I've also seen Christians who firmly understand that God is sovereign, and he has purposes we don't understand, who have gone through suffering, and they have not left their faith but it was tested and proven, and it was strengthened. Suffering also, according to Scripture, can uh, be allowed to bring glory to God. I think this is one of the most interesting stories that we often breeze by. Here's a guy who was born blind, and he has lived years, all of his life, in darkness. And according to the Jewish culture, Most Jews would say if this man was born blind or had some kind of illness, it was because of sin. Let's look at it. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, the he is Jesus. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Now, i got to help you understand that. They have probably sinned. What he was actually saying, because only Jesus was sinless, right? What he was saying is this is not the product of his sin or his parents' sin. Let's move on to what it says, though. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why didn't it say through him? I mean, have you ever just stopped and wondered why certain things are phrased the way they are? God had a work he wanted to do in him, in this man, for God's glory. And so he's, he's healed I don't know why or what your suffering might look like, but could it be that God wants to show his work in that, in you, not only for your purpose, but for those that are also watching? You know, your response to suffering to those that are watching may be the very thing that brings them closer to God, that helps them put their trust in God. As they watch you, when it doesn't make sense to believe in a God who is good, when it doesn't make sense to believe that God cares about you, and they see you trusting in the midst of your suffering, that can speak volumes of your depth of dedication and love for God that may turn their hearts toward God as well. Which brings us to the next point, that suffering can lead us to spiritual growth. It can lead us to grow spiritually. James chapter 1, this is James, the the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who doesn't even believe his brother is the Messiah until Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And he becomes a a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And in his letter, he understands people are suffering, and he writes this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So we've already touched on that, but he recognizes the value of, of difficulties. It tests your faith. But the testing of your faith does something. It produces perseverance. Boy, don't we need that, the ability to stick through difficult times. So many people are fair-weathered Christians. When things are going my way and going good, I'm with you, God. But as soon as that changes, forget it. What he needs in the lives of his followers are perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Friends, nothing grows us up on our faith like going through a hard time. The school of hard knocks has lessons we will not quick forget as we learn those through the land of suffering. But I do want to add a side note here. I have heard well-meaning Christians say something like this that God will never allow more than we can handle. And I, and, I, and I know what they're trying to say. But at face value, God will never allow you to have more than you can handle is bunk. Here's why. If I can handle it, I don't need God. Is that true? If I can handle it, I don't need him. So the idea that God will never give you more than you can handle, I know what they're trying to say. But at face value, that is bunk. Because I have faced things that I would say, I can't handle this. I I don't have the strength and the resolve and the ability within me to handle this. In fact, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, 
had felt that way. Let's look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. You tell Paul, hey, Paul, listen, God will never give you more than you can handle. What's he going to say? Well, there was this time in Asia when God gave me something far beyond my ability to endure. So that we despaired of life itself. That's, that's, that's what the, a dark place they were in of their suffering. This was not like a, a kumbaya moment. This was hard. They couldn't endure, but why? But this happened. Paul made the connection. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He knew the things that he faced would develop the trust he has in God. He would grow through those, even if it felt like more than he could handle. If I can handle it, I don't need to rely on God. And when it's more than I can handle, and then his grace and his power is at work in me as I go through my suffering, then my faith will grow. There's an example of the life of Joseph, and I I had never really seen this part. There's a couple of things that just all of a sudden out of Scripture just kind of popped out like, well, I had never seen that before. Many of us know the story of Old Testament Joseph, who was one of the sons of Jacob, and his brothers didn't like him very much because he was daddy's favorite, and he, he uh, ends up being basically um, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. They tell dad, Joseph's dead. I mean, this was not good stuff happening to Joseph. Joseph ends up in Egypt where he works for Potiphar, and and Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of rape, which he had never tried to do because she was the one trying to seduce. He finds himself in prison, all for doing nothing wrong. We know the rest of the story, though. God elevates Joseph to second in command to Pharaoh, and he has a purpose for the suffering. And the purpose would be that Joseph might preserve his family, the nation of Israel, in the time of famine. You can read the story for yourself. I'd encourage you to in Genesis. But there's this one point when Joseph now is older, he has kids that he's naming, and look what he does in Genesis 41, verse 52. The second son of Joseph, he named Ephraim and said... It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Friends, that is something that we need to maybe write down on a note and stick in your Bible. If you're living right now in the land of suffering, Joseph discovered something. God has a purpose, and he actually can make me fruitful in my land of suffering. Sometimes suffering, friends, can lead to a more fruitful life for God as he grows our faith. But are you able to say right now in my suffering, thank you, God, in this land of suffering, I feel so fruitful? Probably not. The only way we can respond that way is when we actually respond to our suffering, not react, right? Responding to suffering means I'm looking for the intention. I'm looking for God's perspective. I want to understand. I want to learn through this what God is showing, reacting as, God, why? And shaking fists and not trying to understand what God is doing that will actually make you fruitful in this life. I love Paul, the same Paul who thought that he was getting more than God could handle, right? Look what he says to the church at Corinth. Same chapter, a little bit late, not same chapter, but same letter, a little bit later, chapter 4. He says this in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. 
They're going through tough stuff. But we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. And maybe that's how you feel in your land of suffering. I'm wasting away. My energy, my strength, my resolve, it's wasting away outwardly. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. So he says, he's calling this hardship light and momentary. Um, But he recognizes in perspective, there's a greater glory, eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on what is happening around us, not on our suffering, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, this too shall pass, but what is unseen is eternal. So he learns to fix his eyes on God, to fix his eyes on his Lord, to help him understand a greater glory and purpose for what he is going through in his land of suffering. I've already referenced Johnny Erickson Tata, but she wrote a book. I would encourage you to read. If you're struggling with suffering and you know somebody who is, I'm going to pay attention to somebody who is suffering in a wheelchair 40 years now dealing with chronic pain. I'm going to listen to what they have to say about suffering rather than some great author in a crystal cathedral writing what he thinks God has to say about it because this is a woman who lives in it daily. And she wrote a book that's called A Place of Healing, Wrestling with the Mysteries of Suffering, Pain, and God's Sovereignty. And I encourage you to get the book. But here's just an excerpt I want to read because I love her perspective. I don't know when this season of pain will be over. Maybe in God's grace and wisdom, he'll say enough and banish the pain within the hour. Or maybe he'll say enough, allowing me to step out of this long disabled, deteriorating, temporary housing into my building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. In the meantime, these afflictions of mine, this very season of multiplied pain, is the background against which God has commanded me to show forth his praise. It is also that thing that I am to reckon as good and acceptable and perfect, according to Romans 12. God bids me that I not only seek to accept it, but to embrace it, knowing full well that somewhere way down deep in a secret place I have yet to see lies my highest good. So yes, I pray that my pain might be removed and I might cease, or that it might cease, but more so, I pray for the strength to bear it, the grace to benefit from it, and the devotion to offer it up to God as a sacrifice of praise. My strength in prayer these days is scant, I'll confess that, So for all the concentration I can muster in prayer, I must not dissipate it in seeking physical blessings only. Rather, I must spend a good portion of it seeking spiritual growth and praying for Christ's kingdom to go forth in this dark world. That's a perspective I think that is proper from a woman who is suffering yet fully trusts her Savior. And finally, suffering reminds us that we serve a God who suffered with us and for us. In his book, Making Sense Out of Suffering, Peter Kreeft writes these words, God didn't give us a placebo or a pill or good advice. He gave us himself. He came. He entered space and time and suffering. I mean, think about it for a minute. Suffering was caused because of the sin of mankind. So sin is this issue that leads to suffering. 
But God, to deal with the suffering and sin, chooses himself to suffer. I mean, what, what religion is going to offer you that sense of a God who enters our pain and enters our story? When I begin to think about it, I look at the account of Jesus' life, and I think about, well, what if Jesus was born in 2000 or even in 1970, the year I was born? If he was tried by the courts and was found to be a heretic or whatever, his form of death would probably be lethal injection. Now, all of us have had a shot. Yeah, there's a little pinch, a little bee sting, but that's it, right? Why would God enter our world in the time where the Romans, who were masters at causing pain, masters at drawing out suffering of their prisoners, why insert himself into the story there? There's a lot of other reasons, but have you ever just kind of thought about that for a minute? The Roman crucifixion is one of the most horrific ways to die. And that's just the end of all the other suffering he experienced as a man living in in our world. And then his, his arrest and beating and mocking and all the things that he went through in that time. Why would he do that? Well, the prophet Isaiah speaks to that the foretelling of the coming of the suffering Savior. He says in Isaiah 53 that he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering. When you think about Jesus, understand the prophet said he is a man, not who suffers. What does it say? He is a man of suffering. And he is familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. That's how bad his suffering was. People couldn't even look. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what is unbelievable about God. Because people want to look at God and shake their fists and say, God, you don't understand what it's like to be a human. You don't understand pain. But the cross removes all of that ammo for our accusation and condemnation of him. Because the cross was a demonstration where God said, I did enter your suffering. And I walked this world with you. And I was beaten and betrayed and crucified. And I died. I know what suffering is. And I did that not because I sinned, not because I'm bad, not because I deserve this. I did this because this is the only solution to the broken curse of sin in our world. God loves us enough to enter our suffering. He doesn't just suffer with us, friends. He suffered ultimately for us. He knows suffering. So why do we suffer? There's several reasons. There's more in the Bible that I don't have time to get into today. But oftentimes our suffering is that we might be able to not only experience God's comfort, but to comfort others with the comfort we've received during our suffering. That's another reason why. We also know that that, that suffering does, is not evidence that God doesn't love us. In fact, the Bible says in Romans that nothing separates us from God's love, not even suffering. But why? 
Here's kind of the, the big point I want to leave us with today. And before I share it, many of you have heard of Rick Warren. As a family, they suffered with the, the, the death, the suicide of one of their children. And he writes this. He says, our deepest life message often comes out of our deepest pain. Here's what I want to share today as we think about suffering, and it's this. And I know it sounds morbid, but hang with me. God never wastes your suffering. He redeems it for a greater purpose. I don't know why I have suffered in my past. I don't know why you have gone through suffering. I don't know. You could look at some of those reasons in Scripture and come to terms with that and rebuild a frame around that. But here's one frame I know to be true, that God never wastes suffering, whatever that cause might be, but he redeems it for a greater purpose. What is that greater purpose for you today? Is it that you might know him better? Is it that your faith may grow? Is it that somebody's watching and needs to see and a genuine faith in the midst of adversity? I don't know. But I do know God never wastes your suffering. God always has a way to use suffering. While he may not cause it, he can find a way to use it to fulfill his purposes in our lives. He has a way of redeeming broken things. That's the message of the cross. I have redeemed broken mankind. I have offered forgiveness, but I can do the same with your suffering. But how does that happen? When we come honestly before God and say, Lord, what I'm experiencing, I don't understand. But I'm going to trust that you have a greater purpose here. I'm going to lean into you that you might help my faith to grow that others that see might put their trust in you, that my faith might be refined and proven in the midst of this, knowing that I just live in a broken world and bad things will happen. Evil will still take place, but ultimately, God, you will set all things right. That's the message of the hope we have in Christ Jesus. And I know sometimes in the midst of our suffering, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to embrace that. It's hard to want to understand that. But that's what we do in things that don't make sense to us. We don't look at our pain. We don't look at ourselves. We look to God. So let's pray. As we pray today, maybe you're here today and you're saying, Kelly, I'm, I'm, I'm going through suffering or somebody that I love is going through suffering and it really just has been hard for me to understand why God would allow this. But today, I'm, just, I'm renewing my commitment to God that even through suffering, he has a purpose. And I can trust him with that. So I'm renewing just that, that confidence in him even in the midst of suffering. If that's you, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. I'm renewing my confidence. Thank you. Thank you. I'm renewing confidence in the midst of this difficulty, this hardship. Thank you. Maybe for others, you have walked away or you've been on the ledge of your faith in Christ, and it's been over issues of suffering. You just couldn't reconcile it in the frame you've developed to make sense of suffering, and so you're just about ready to walk away from your faith. But today, you're saying, I'm going to recommit to trust God. I may not have all the answers, and the reality is those answers still don't bring us comfort, but God in our suffering brings us comfort. Maybe for you, it's just a matter of saying, I'm just going to recommit to him today, to trust him, 
even when it doesn't make sense. If that's you, just raise your hand and say, that's me. I was close to walking away on this issue of suffering, but I'm committing myself to him again today. Or for others, we talked about it. Maybe the suffering you feel is, the, is because of the sin in your life. It's because you're blatantly not following God. You're, you're thumbing your nose at him. You're living according to the flesh. You're doing whatever you want. And, and outside of that, you are, because of that, dealing with the consequence and the suffering of your own doing. And you're saying today, you know what? I, I don't understand it all today, but I want to learn more about following Christ and finding forgiveness. So I stop, you know, hijacking my life. If that's you, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Pray with me today. I'm going to put my hope and trust in Christ. Start with forgiveness, and then from there, see what it means to follow him with your life. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you've loved us in our good times. You've loved us in our suffering. You've been with us in our good times, and you've been with us in our suffering. And sometimes it's in the suffering that it's so hard to see you. Because we're mad. Or our suffering blinds us to the reality of your presence. So God, I just pray that we would understand and agree today that in your sovereignty you are good. And according to what Paul says, who experienced plenty of suffering, he said you have a way of working all of these things together for good. They don't feel good in the moment. They may never feel good, but you have a way of working all of these things together for our good. So we trust you, even in the midst of suffering today. We pray for those in the room maybe who are suffering right now, God, that you would reveal yourself to them in the midst of this. For those who are trying to walk with a friend through a very difficult time of suffering, I pray you would give them words to say that will actually bring comfort to their friend and not harm. There's still a great mystery wrapped around suffering, but there are some things that we can know from your word. Help us to share those with grace and truth, we pray. And as we go from this place, help us to continue to trust you, whatever tomorrow brings. In Jesus' name, amen.